Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Guys, well, we're going to go ahead and get started um, so we can kind of stay on time. Tonight, we're going to go ahead and do the message first and then uh, do the discussion time at the end. Um, So... That will be good. Um, real quick, though, a couple of announcements. Uh, next week, uh, we have the devoted Christmas party. There's flyers next to the outline. So, um, yeah, we'll be up here, same time, same place. Uh, we'll have our white elephant gift exchange. So between 20 to $25 gift, bring it wrapped. And we will go ahead and do that. It's a lot of fun. Um so, yeah, come ready for that. I will provide dinner, so we'll have a meal. We're going to get some food brought in from Wise Guys. Uh, it's a pizza place here in Yorba Linda. They've got amazing pizza, so we'll have pizza and salads and, you know, uh, probably a few other things uh, to have for that. So I'm expecting to have a, a really great night and just some fun fellowship and uh, celebrating our Lord and, and his incarnation. Um, another thing that kind of is in the works, um, I don't know exactly what day it's going to happen. It'll either be next week or the following week, kind of hoping the following week, but it's not really up to me. Um, so when we went to Israel, uh, we visited a a few of my friends that were there, but one of them, uh, my friend, Matt, who lived in Yad Hashemina, uh, we went and he lives in this community out in the, the Jerusalem forest and it's really nice, but uh, him and his wife are missionaries. Uh, they came from America. They moved out there and uh, they're ministering in the land. Uh, they run a Bible college, a few other things. Um, but anyways, we got to go to Yad Hashmanah and he gave us kind of a little tour of the facilities. They had a biblical garden there and it was really, really sweet. Well, anyways, they're in town uh, for the month for Christmas. And so I asked him to come and join us. He's been at Devoted before uh, and shared some different stuff about Israel and what's going on in Israel. Uh, but he'll either be here uh, next Tuesday or the Tuesday, the following Tuesday, the 26th. Um, so I think that'll be a great time uh, be able to hear from him, ask him questions. You know, what was it like, uh, you know, when the war was taking place, things like that. So any questions you have regarding Israel and and that kind of thing, that would be a great time to bring them and ask them. Um, On kind of the positive side, I read recently that Netanyahu said that the war he's expecting to be over in about a month, uh, the fighting in that in Gaza. So it's looking like a, a very real possibility that we will be able to go in July. So um, I'm excited about that. Keep praying. And uh, if you want some more information about that, I'd be happy to share it with you. Uh, but yeah, uh, July, I don't remember the dates. It's the second half of July. Um, and it's a, a, a wonderful trip. I'd love for you to be a part of it. Um, that's it for the announcements. So if you have your Bible, open it to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. Tonight, we're going to look specifically at verses 16 and 17, 
but I'm going to go ahead and start reading uh, for context's sake in verse 10. We're studying the, the armor of God, the idea of spiritual warfare. And so we'll kind of look at it all as, as one unit. Uh, he says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist or stand in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness." having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the firing, the fire, or all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So God, I thank you that you have called us to yourself. You've saved us. You've changed us. You've given us a new set of clothes, Lord, and, and you've even given us a set of armor. I pray that you would encourage all of us tonight to get into the fight, to join the resistance, Lord, and to use that armor that you've given us, uh, that, that tried and tested armor, uh, to fight the, the works of the enemy, Lord. Show us how we could do that better and uh, equip us for just that, Lord. But we need you. We need you. I need you to speak anything of profit. They need you to receive your word, Lord. And apart from you, nothing good is going to happen tonight. So we give you this time. Please be with us and minister to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I had some friends right around the time I was graduating high school. You know, we're all trying to figure out what we want to do with our life, what's next. Uh, but I had a handful of friends that decided that they wanted to join the military. One of the reasons that they wanted to join the military was to travel, to go around the world and see different places and things like that. And I got to admit, that's one of the appeals that people have uh, for that type of service. But another common reason for, one of my, for some of my friends for wanting to join the military was to use some of the equipment that the military had at their disposal. One friend in particular, he really wanted to fly an F-16. He wanted to be a fighter pilot. And so he joined the military, hoping that he would be able to do just that. I had another friend who uh, I played football with. This guy was a genius, but like kind of the weird, crazy kind of genius. And he joined the military uh, because he wanted to make bombs. Uh, another friend joined the military because he wanted to be able to shoot like 50, mounted 50 cows and bazookas and things like that at the enemy. Uh, you know, this section that we're in, in Paul's epistle, it reads kind of like a military recruitment letter. Paul is calling the believers to take a stand against the forces of evil, hence my title, to join the resistance. And just like joining the United States military affords folks the opportunity to use some awesome weaponry, taking a stand against our spiritual em uh, enemy and has some spiritual armor and weapons as well. And we started looking at these last week, and we're going to continue that tonight. We've been studying this magnificent epistle of Paul's to the church of Ephesus, and, and really to us as well, uh, for, for many weeks and months now. 
And we're finally making it towards the end. In fact, this section that we're looking at tonight is, is kind of a closing. It's kind of a, a summation or a conclusion to this epistle. Everything that he mentions in this passage is mentioned elsewhere numerous times uh, in this letter. We, we've seen all of this before. You see, Paul spent the first three chapters talking about the believer's wealth. He, he, he gets into great detail explaining how we uh, possess every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, he talks about our salvation and, and everything that our salvation entails. And then in chapter 4, the the, the focus kind of shifts, and he starts talking about how we're to live, how we're to walk in light of all of these blessings. And he spends really the next two and a half chapters uh, saying that we're, we're to walk in a certain way. Another way of looking at this is he is saying that since we're in Christ, this is the way that uh, this is going to, true salvation is going to work itself out in our lives. Our lives will be radically transformed. For instance, we'll go from people who steal to people who do work so that we could give to those who have a need. Our relationships are going to be radically transformed as well. We're going to go from people that were inherently selfish and self-centered and self-focused to being people that are being mutually submissive. We're going to willingly submit to one another in the fear of Christ. You see, the, the power of the Holy Spirit living in us allows us to live in this beautiful mutual submission to each other. And all of this sounds really great, doesn't it? You know, we get all these blessings in Christ. We get our life completely transformed for the better. Uh, it, it just sounds so ideal. It sounds so great. What's not to like about it? Well, Paul, in this closing or, or summation of his letter, is going to lay out an important fact that we need to remember. We have a spiritual enemy that's opposing us and trying to keep us from realizing all of this stuff that he's already talked about. He's trying to keep us from realizing the, the joy that comes from those spiritual blessings. He's trying to hinder us from the sanctification that God wants to bring in our life by, by transforming it in the way that we live. He wants to rob us of our ministry and kill our witness and literally just destroy us. In verse 11, we're introduced to this enemy. He is none other than the devil or Satan. In verse 12, we learn a few things about this opponent. The first thing we learn is he is not a human enemy. Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces and wickedness in the heavenly places. See, we have a, a spiritual enemy that dwells in the spiritual realm or the heavenly places. It's the unseen realm. See, our, our, our true enemy isn't our boss. It's not our parents. It's not our neighbor. It's not Antifa or anything like that. No, our real enemy is the spiritual forces that are working behind the scenes to manipulate these people and use them to irritate us and keep us from God's blessings. Remember when Jesus and the boys were at Caesarea Philippi? And, and Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? 
And some of them said, you're John the Baptist. And some said, you're a prophet like Jeremiah. Jesus then asked him, who do you say that I am? Remember Peter's answer? He pipes up and says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. To which Jesus commends him and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father in heaven did. Right? This is great. He's receiving divine illumination. The, the spirit of God is ministering the truth of God, the word of God to Peter, bringing it to his realization. He's speaking it. He's, he's prophesying. But immediately after this, Jesus begins talking to the boys about the fact that he's going to get arrested, that he's going to be crucified, and on the third day he's going to rise again. And Peter's completely shocked about this, and he actually starts rebuking the Lord. He's saying, hey, may it not be, Lord. And, and, and how does Jesus respond? He says, hey, get behind me, Satan. Your, your, your minds aren't on the things of God, but on the, the things of man. See, we see here that there was a spiritual force working behind Peter, manipulating Peter, causing doubt in Peter, so that he would doubt the words that Jesus was speaking. That's why Jesus rebuked Satan and not Peter. Jesus saw that the real enemy wasn't Peter. It was Satan manipulating people, or Peter. So our real enemies aren't the people in our lives who annoy us and distract us. No, they're the spiritual forces working to cause these people to be such an annoyance. Secondly, we learn in verse 12 that our enemy is powerful. Paul says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers, against world forces of this darkness. You know, Satan, our enemy, is extremely powerful. And not only is he powerful, but Revelation chapter 12 tells us that when he fell, he took a third of the angels with him. So now he leads this opposition force to the kingdom of God that consists of himself and a third of the angelic realm. We would call these demons. And this evil enemy is structured. And it has ordered like a good military force would be. Uh, we see this in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel's praying. He's asking for wisdom to this revelation that he had received in chapter 9. And we're told that the second that his prayer was heard, that God sent an answer. God sent a messenger to Daniel with the answer to his prayer. But he was delayed, right? When, when he finally gets there, he says, no, that the, the prince of Persia, was opposing him, was holding him up for 21 days. Michael the archangel had to come and, and assist him and free him so that he could get to Daniel. So there's demons that are sent to, uh, or, or, or charged to, to terrorize one specific area. Uh, they, they have a, a principality that they're over. And there's probably demons uh, assigned to you and I. They want to keep us from experiencing all that God has for us. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about how he had this thorn in the flesh. Remember that? He calls it, he calls it a, a messenger from Satan. Well, in the Greek, the word for messenger is just simply anhalas. He says that I have this angel of Satan coming in and tormenting me. It was harassing him night and day. But it, God had a purpose for it. God was using that to teach him that, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Even in the midst of that, even with this evil force in your life, I'm going to use that to teach you that my grace is sufficient. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if it's not the same for each one of us. The third thing we learn in verse 12 is, uh, look at the way that our, our enemies described. Darkness and wickedness are the words that Paul chooses. The forces that are opposing us are absolutely evil. They may hide themselves as angel of light, but there's absolutely no light in them. They're wolves in sheep's clothing, hell-bent on destroying us. We need to be aware and ready for them as we would be for an intruder coming into our homes. Right? We need to make preparation knowing each and every day that there are, is an enemy, they're going to attack us, and we need to be ready. That would be like me walking through Gaza right now, like dee, 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 just taking a, a stroll through the park. Like that would be insane, right? Everybody knows that that's a war zone. But how do we be aware, you ask? How do we fight this enemy? Paul makes it very clear in this passage. Four times in our text, we're told to stand or resist the enemy. We're not to go out and look for him. We aren't to attack him. No, he, he does a plenty good job finding us. He's going to find us. He's going to attack us. And when he does, our job is to stand. It's to resist. But how do we resist? By putting on the full armor of God. Right? What is this full armor of God? That's what we're going to get into. But first I want to remind us of what this armor is symbolic of. The armor of Paul describes is really a metaphor for, for different aspects of the nature and the character of who Jesus is. Each piece of armor represents something about Jesus. So in a sense, we're really being told to put on Jesus. You see, Paul knew Roman soldiers very well. There were Roman soldiers in his hometown of Tarsus where he grew up. When he went to Jerusalem to go to rabbi school under the great Gamaliel, there was Roman soldiers everywhere. Every single missionary trip he went on, wherever he went uh, throughout the, the Roman Empire, there'd be Roman soldiers everywhere. Even in his incarceration where he is writing this letter, he's chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. Every six hours they would switch the soldier out, but he's constantly next to this Roman soldier. So Paul is picturing the warfare that believers face in the spiritual realm, and he's looking at the Roman soldier, thinking just like how they have gear to protect us, protect them in battle. Well, well, so do we. And our gear, though, it's it's not physical gear; it's spiritual gear. That's why he writes in Second Corinthians chapter ten, verse three: "For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For our weapons." of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. See, it's important that we note that this powerful spiritual armor we possess is the character and the nature of Christ. Each character or each article of our armor uh, corresponds with the character of Christ. So in other words, we're really being called to put on Christ. In chapter 4, verse 24, we are exhorted to put on the new self, which is in the manner of the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then in chapter 5, 18, we're told to not get drunk with wine, but be being filled with the Spirit. Whether it's putting on the armor we're putting on the new self, we're being filled with the Spirit, it's all the same thing. It's the same exhortation. And the fact that Paul mentions it three times in three different ways should highlight the importance of 
being booted and suited and, and ready for combat, being geared up and ready to go. But as we look at this armor, we could really divide it into two groups. There, there's one group that uh, it's, it's pieces of armor that stay permanently fixed to us. Uh, the things that we put on and we don't take off, they go with us wherever we go. Right? And we covered these last week. I'm going to briefly go through them again tonight for some of you that are new and kind of for review. But the other group of armor we're going to look at aren't things that are attached to us, but they're things that we need to have around us and ready. They're things that we need to take up and, and know how to use when the battle begins. We need to be experienced with it. We need to be good at wielding them. So let's do a quick review of the armor that we covered last week. For letter A, there's armor we need to permanently fix to ourselves. So fill in the word permanently. And then for number one, the truth needs to be at the center of our lives. And fill in the word center there as well. In John 8, verse 44, Jesus tells us that Satan is a liar, that he was a liar from the beginning, that when he lies, he is speaking from his very nature. So it makes sense that if our enemy is a liar and a deceiver, we need to know the truth. Otherwise, we're going to be lied to and deceived. You see, in the first century, men would wear what's they called a tunic. It was pretty much like a dress. Right? It would come down about halfway between the knees and the ankles, and it would have a hole for your head, one for each arm. And... Uh, they would wear that, you know, it kind of fit. It was comfortable for that climate and things like that. You know, clothing wasn't too uh, advanced in the first century, but, but that's what they had. And men, if they were going to work or if they were going to battle, they would have to pull their dress up a little bit, so to speak, and tie it off with a belt. Otherwise, they would be tripping over it. It would be getting in the way. It would be getting caught on things. So it would give them freedom to, to move and to operate. Paul says, saying we need to gird up our loins. This is an Old Testament expression of, of being ready. Remember in Exodus chapter 12, uh, God is giving Moses and the children of Israel instructions for the, the Passover, how they're to eat the Passover meal. And one of the stipulations for eating the Passover meal was that they, they needed to have their, their loins girded. Right? They needed to be ready to go because they were going to go in a, in a hurry. And, and, and so Paul here is saying that we need to be ready. We need to be ready to use the truth. I mentioned last, last week that this isn't specific truths. It's, it, it's not speaking of like, you know, specific truths in the Bible, but it's speaking of, of general truth. Uh, it, it's speaking of the whole truth. It's, it's all the truth in Scripture. It's, it's right doctrine. It's, it's systematic theology. It's taking everything that the Bible says about a specific subject and taking it into account. It's, it's, it's having right doctrine, right theology. You know, we need to know what the entire Bible teaches about core doctrines or we're going to allow people into our fellowship that will inevitably lead us astray and cause damage in our lives. I like what Warren Wiersbe said in his commentary. He said, one Sunday afternoon, I visited a man who had been a deacon in a local church. But at this time, he was involved in a false cult. We sat at the table with our open Bibles, and I tried to show him the truths of God's word. But it seemed his mind 
was blinded by lies. How did you happen to turn away from this Bible-preaching church and get involved in this belief, I asked, and his reply stunned me. He said, preacher, I blame the church. He says, I don't know anything about the Bible. They didn't teach me much more. I wanted to study the Bible, but nobody told me how. Then they made me a deacon, and I wasn't ready for it. It was too much for me. I heard this man preaching the Bible over the radio, and it sounded as if he knew something. I started reading his magazine and studying his books, and now I'm convinced he's right. Wearsby says, what a tragedy that when the local church took him in, they failed to fit him with the helmet of salvation. Had they practiced the truth found in 2 Timothy 2.2, this man might not have been a casualty in the battle. That's so sad, but that's exactly it. If we don't have right doctrine, if we don't have the foundations down, these, these cults, these liars, these deceivers are going to come in and they're going to sound smart. They're slick. They're, they're good speakers. And they're going to deceive you. And pretty soon you're going to be in a place of bondage and not freedom. So it's important that we know the truth. John, Jesus says in John chapter 8 that those who abide in his word are his disciples and they'll know the truth. And the truth will set them free. But there's another aspect of truth here, though. It's not so much the quality of truth, but it's the attitude of truth. You see, we need to have an attitude of truthfulness. We need to cinch up our, our belt, symbolizing our readiness to stand and fight for the truth. You see, when a cop puts on his Sam Brown belt, it signifies the fact that he's on duty. Can you imagine when Pastor Bob was a cop, him just walking around with his cop belt on when he wasn't like on patrol or anything? That'd be kind of weird, right? Have you ever seen a cop wearing his patrol belt, like just hanging around the house or maybe out grocery shopping, you know, when they're not in uniform and on duty? No. You see, when they put their belt on, they're saying, hey, I'm ready for patrol. I'm ready to go fight evil. I'm ready to go fight the bad guys. So when we put on the belt of truth, we're saying the same thing. We're saying we're ready. We're ready for battle. We're ready to stand up for the truth. When people say things like gender is fluid, we say, no way, Jose. In the beginning, God created them male and female. When people say that the unborn aren't humans, we are quick to point out the fact that a fetus was the first one to respond to Jesus. When we hear truth is relative, we're ready to respond with something like, well, then why did Jesus testify to the truth? You're claim that truth is relative is a false claim, right? If you say that there's no such thing as absolute truth, you're making an absolute truth claim there. See, we need to be ready to fight for the truth. That's the belt of truth. Now, I admit this isn't popular in our culture or our society. We don't like this. Our, our culture who's being influenced by demonic spirits, they often act negatively to this kind of thing. Right? When, when you stand up for the truth and you speak the truth, they're stirred to act in rage. Can I remind you that this belt of truth is a part of our armor? Paul is talking about spiritual protection here. To not speak for the truth is when we're spiritually vulnerable in reality. 
There's one more thing I want to mention about the belt, though. Often a belt signifies rank. Think of like in, in karate or something like that, right? Your different color belt signifies how far you've advanced, and there's different markings they put on it for different things that you do and whatnot. And I think that's something important for us because you might feel like, hey, in this world, I'm kind of a nobody. My job is insignificant. The way that I serve at the church might feel insignificant. You know, I don't really have important friends, things like that. I'm just kind of a nobody. Well, no, you're not, because you're wearing the belt of truth. You're a part of the Lord's army. You're, you're in the most elite group that you could be a part of. If SEAL Team 6 knew the reality of what the belt of truth was and what it meant to be in the captain of the Lord's host army, they would be jealous of your belt. That's the reality. Number two, righteous living is like a bulletproof vest. Fill in the word living. Verse 14, he says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on a breastplate of righteousness. Uh, last week, we talked about how a Roman soldier uh, had this body armor, uh, this, this vest. It would cover his front and his back, and it would protect his vital organs from the enemy. It was most often made out of beaten metal, and it went from his torso up to his neck. Paul's saying what's going to protect our vital organs is righteousness. And this righteousness could be seen in a couple different ways. First off, there's forensic righteousness. This is justification. This is what happens the second that we believe in Jesus in a saving way. The Bible says that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God puts the new man, Jesus Christ, on us, and we're imputed with his righteousness. This alien righteousness that isn't ours becomes ours, and that's what allows us to have a standing with God. That's what allows us into God's presence. Nobody's going to get there without it. But I don't think that's the primary way Paul is thinking about righteousness here, though. You see, because that righteousness was put on us by God the second that we believe. And it's never taken off of us. There's no way that we could ever lose that righteousness. That righteousness that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. Right? Our sin was imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. It's put on us and it could never be taken off of us. We'll never be more righteous in God's eyes than we are the second that we got saved. We'll never be less righteous either. That's a blessing. But because it's put on us and it's not taken off of us, why would Paul be telling us to put it on again? That wouldn't make any sense, would it? So what kind of righteousness is Paul talking about when he says that we're to put on the breastplate of righteousness? He's talking about practical righteousness. He's talking about right living. You see, if we just do what's right all the time, the enemy is not going to have many footholds in our lives. This is, if we pull in these loose areas in our lives and tuck them into the belt of truth, he's not going to have a whole lot to grab onto. That's the idea. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12.1. He says, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
In a real sense, the, the breastplate of righteousness is laying aside every encumbrance and sin that entangles us. It's, it's learning how to walk the crosswalk, walk that fine line in Christ Jesus. Number three, uh, where do we wearing appropriate footwear? We need to wear appropriate footwear. Verse 15 says, And having shod your feet with the pressure preparation of the gospel of peace. All right, it's confession time. How many of you have ever seen the show Jerry Springer? Jerry Springer show, right? I've seen that. We've all probably seen it, right? It's crazy, right? You see these women get all nuts, so they start fighting and throwing and pulling hair and just crazy stuff, right? Well, I remember watching it one time, and, and this girl was trying to fight, but she had high heels on, and she was having a really hard time. She was losing her balance, and, you know, it, 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 she just really didn't have any agility, and it, she was really easy to push over. In fact, most times when you see girls get in a fight, what do they do? The first thing they do is they take their heels off and their earrings off, right? Because you got to have good footwear. you got to have the right footwear if you're in a fight. Right? If you're trying to fight in high heels or flip-flops or something like that, it's just not going to work. And sometimes I think Christians are just like that, right? We're trying to fight the battle in high heels or in or flojos, or whatever you want to call them. We have the wrong footwear for battle. So what is the right footwear for battle? It's gospel boots. We're to shot our feet with the preparation for the gospel of peace. You see, Roman soldiers, they would wear these sandals. They were made of leather, and it would have a, a leather sole, and then it would uh, the, the toes would be open, but there would be straps that would go over the top, and they'd kind of lace it up around their shin and, and tie it real tight on there. But going through these uh, leather soles would be almost like nails. They would uh, be pushed through and, and, and they were called hobnobs. They, they would work like cleats, right? It, it would give them traction and agility for the battle. Uh, might I suggest that it's the gospel that gives us traction in the slippery world. Every fiber of our being needs to be Standing in gospel shoes. And it's the stability that only gospel shoes can bring. You see, when the enemy attacks us because we've sinned, what do we stand on? We need to stand on the gospel. When the enemy tries to tell us we don't do enough for the kingdom, that we have no right to say that we're Christians, what do we stand on? We stand on the gospel. When tragedy strikes and we're completely filled with grief and we're thinking, how could a loving God do this to me? What do we stand on? We stand on the gospel. So the gospel is what gives us traction in the slippery world. But there's another sense in which gospel choose protect us from the enemy. And this is our, our readiness to use the gospel. You see, when someone offends me, how am I going to respond? Am I going to offend them back? In honesty, I, I do that sometimes. See, but if I use the gospel, how much better off will both of us be? Right? If I'm walking down the street and some guy offends me, instead of getting in his face and yelling at him, if I take him to the Lord and say, hey, Lord, save this sinner. Don't hold what he did against me, against him. He know not what he do. Or if I go to him and try to take the Lord to him and look for an opportunity to share the gospel and tell him about the love of Jesus Christ. You know, how much is that protecting my heart and keeping me from getting in the flesh and keeping me from doing something that 
will hurt him and me. See, this is why Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So there's these pieces of armor that are fixed to us. We always have these on. Soldiers would wear these no matter what, whether they're fighting, whether they're guarding a prisoner, whether they're marching, whatever they're doing, they had their belt of truth, their breastplate of righteousness, and their gospel boots on, so to speak. Now we're going to look at the few pieces of armor that aren't permanently fixed. These are things that we need to have ready, and we need to be able to pick up, and we need to be skilled at using for the right time. So for letter B, fill in, there's armor that we need to be ready to wield. So fill in, be ready. And then for number one, faith is a shield against the enemy's attacks. So the fill in for number one is shield. Throughout the Old Testament, the shield was used as an image of God's protection for his people. We see this over and over and over again. God's saying he's a shield to his people. Genesis 15.1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 33.20 says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. You know, Roman soldiers had two different types of shields that they would use. One was a smaller circular shield that they would use when they're involved in hand-to-head -hand combat. You're in a sword fight with someone and you've got this small shield on your forearm that you could use to block the blows of the sword that he's trying to to use. But they had another shield, though. They had this shield called the Thurios. And this shield was large. It was probably about four and a half feet tall, probably about two and a half feet wide. And it was made of wood, uh, multiple layers of wood. It was often covered in leather, which would then be soaked in water uh, so that it couldn't be caught on fire. And this shield was very important in ancient warfare. See, they didn't have tanks and Humvees and things like that, so it was difficult to safely get around in the combat zone. So the soldiers would link their shields together and form a wall. They would, the, the shields would literally have things that would link together, kind of like the chairs do, and they would form a wall. There would be layers of them, and then they'd have ones covering the top. And they would march wherever they were going and have protection. They'd have people behind them shooting arrows that it was protecting and whatnot. Sometimes these walls would be over a mile long, just marching through the terrain, this impenetrable force marching through the, the battlefield. And the enemy's tactic would be to take arrows and put a pitch on the cover of it and light it on fire. And they would start shooting them at this wall that's moving through the, the, the battlefield. They, they would shoot them straight on. They'd shoot them up in the air, shoot them from all different angles. And the idea was they were really trying to scare and, and, and confuse the enemy. Their goal was that the enemy would get scared and drop their shield and run away. And there would all of a sudden be a break in the wall. And they'd be able to get to him that way. Or that the arrow would hit it and catch the shield on fire and the soldier would throw the shield and run away. 
well, that the arrow would hit it. And because of the pitch would fly off, that the fire would spread and it would catch other shields on fire. Or maybe it would get on the soldier's clothes or something like that. And the, the fire would spread and cause disorder and chaos and all the rest. But Paul says we need the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. See, we, we, we need to have our shield, but we also be, need to be ready to direct it in the direction that the enemy is lobbing his attacks at us. See, if I have a shield that's four and a half feet tall, two and a half feet wide, it's more than able to take out the fiery darts, and I'm holding it here, and the enemy shooting me from over there, it's really not going to do me a, a whole lot of good. Right? And we get have faith in who God is. But when the enemy starts lying to us and trying to deceive us, if we don't take that faith and actually direct it at that deception or that attack, it's not going to do us any good. Now this brings up a good question. What is faith? It's our shield and it's important. It's how we're going to negate the attack of the enemy. But what is it? Here's my favorite definition for faith. Faith is the ability to hear God speak and respond in an appropriate manner. Faith is the ability to hear God speak and respond in an appropriate manner. In other words, faith is properly applying God's word to each and every situation that comes my way. No matter what circumstance I'm in, I'm looking to use the word of God to direct me. So the more my faith, the better. And faith comes from hearing, and hearing the words of Christ. The more that we're in the Bible and living the Bible, the more our faith's going to grow. The more our faith grows, the less we'll be susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. Now, it's important we distinguish this. Our faith doesn't stop the enemy. It's what our faith is, is in, right? It, it, it's Jesus Christ that stops the enemy dead in his track. It's the object of our faith. Remember last week I was talking about the book of Jude and how in Jude 9 we see this weird thing where Michael the archangel is fighting against Satan over the body of Moses. And what does Michael the archangel say to Satan? He says, the Lord rebuke you. You see, he was successful over the devil because of who his faith was in. It wasn't his faith that stopped the devil. No, it was Jesus. It was the Lord. It was because he had faith in the Lord that the Lord was able to work and to stop the fight. Sometimes this is going to be difficult, though. See, sometimes the, the demons are already going to have us in a tussle, and we don't even know what to do. We're already anxious. We're already depressed. We're already distressed, and, and, and we don't know what to do. Yeah, we know Philippians 4, 6, that we're, we're going to be anxious for nothing but everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. We're to make our request be made known to the Lord, and the, the Lord will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We know that's true, but sometimes taking that prescription is awfully hard, especially when you are already in a tough spot. See, the best thing that we could do in 
those situations is run to the congregation of the righteous. Go lock shields with other believers. Let them take your burden and fulfill the law of Christ. You know, there's places in the Bible where we see the Lord acting on somebody's behalf, not because of that person's faith, but because of somebody else's faith that was next to them. You see, one day Jesus was teaching and uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were sitting there and uh, this guy, this paralytic needed healing and he couldn't get there. And uh, so his friends, they took him and they put him on a bed and they carried him to the house where Jesus was teaching. But the crowd was so big that they, they couldn't get in. So these, these guys, they took their friend up on the roof and they removed the roof of the tile and, and they dug in and, and they let their friend down right in front of Jesus. And it says this, seeing their faith, Jesus said, your sin, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus healed them on the basis of his friend's faith. And I think that's a very good picture of us running and locking shields with one another. Our, our, our need for one another. When we're paralyzed with fear, when we're paralyzed with anxiety, and when we're paralyzed with depression, we need brothers and sisters to carry us to Jesus so that we could be healed. That's why it's so important that we're involved with groups like this, so that we meet people. We have these relationships. So when someone sees that we're not here, we're calling them, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm going to come get you. I'm going to come and carry you to Jesus. So the shield of faith is rightly living out the word of God. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The next piece of armor is uh, we, the hope of our salvation protects our minds. So we're talking about the helmet of salvation. Verse 17, and take up the helmet of salvation. A Roman soldier would wear these big brass helmets and it would cover his head and neck area. There are often plates coming up the side of it that would protect the cheekbones and whatnot. Uh, these helmets were large and heavy. They'd often have a sponge on the top of it to kind of have some cushioning for the head. But this helmet was absolutely an essential part of the armor because it, it, it protected against the broadsword of the enemy. You see, the enemy, they had uh, guys that would fight on, so on, on horses, and they had these big four-foot-long swords, these broadswords. And so the idea is, is they would come up behind you on this horse, and with one lop, your, your head wouldn't be on your body anymore. Right? You, you would be taken out instantly. And this helmet uh, was the only protection that they had against that broadsword of the enemy. You know, the enemy has many wiles. We, we learn that in verse 11, right? We're to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. But his two biggest uh, schemes or, or, or wiles or uh, uh, strategies that he uses are fear and doubt. He wants to use the circumstances of this fallen world and the lusts of our fallen flesh to cause us to doubt the fact that we're really saved. He wants to use the things of the world to cause us to fear that God and his provision isn't enough for us. 
You see, one of the greatest defenses we have against Satan is the security of, this, of our salvation, the Bible teaches. But the, the more that we grasp the idea that we are secure in Christ, that we're saved in Christ, that nothing is going to snatch us out of Christ's hand, the less and less the enemy is going to be able to attack us. You know, one of my favorite passages on this comes in John chapter 6 and verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he's given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Did you catch that? Jesus is saying it's the will of my Father, and it's my mission, it's, it's what the Father sent me to do, is to raise you up on the last day. So my question for you is, when has God's will ever not, not come to pass? When has Jesus ever failed in his mission? Never. We could take it to the bank that we're going to make it to heaven. You know, Jesus came and he started offering people eternal life. Right? And he, all that believe in the Son have eternal life. He wasn't offering them um, five-minute life or five-hour life or five-day life or five-week life or five-year life, five-decade life. It was eternal life. By the very nature of what it is, it has to last forever. If there was a possibility that you could lose your salvation, it wouldn't be eternal now, would it? So we need to grasp that. We need to grasp that we are secure in Christ. And one of the ways that I know that we're going to make it to heaven is because we're protected where it matters. We have a breastplate of righteousness. It's covering all of our vital organs. We have a helmet of salvation that's protecting us from the broadsword of the enemy. So yeah, the enemy could attack us. The enemy could, you know, kind of lop off a limb here or there. But hey, I'm proof that you could live with a missing limb. Right? You, you ain't going to live with a missing head. You're not going to live with a dagger in your heart. But God has protected us from those attacks. So yeah, the enemy might attack us. Yeah, he might beat us up a little bit. But God's going to use it for good. He can't permanently hurt you. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So this hope of salvation has to do with uh, our, our glorification. The Bible speaks of salvation in three different ways speaks of justification. That's what happens when we're saved. We're, we're forensically called righteous. We're imputed with the righteousness of Christ and, and, and we're deemed righteous. Then there's sanctification. That's the process of God turning us from a sinner into Christ. It's conforming us to Christ's image. He uses our entire life to do that. That's what he's doing right now in our life. He's using everything, uh, everything in our life, even the devil and his demons, to sanctify us, to make us more and more like Jesus. The third part of our salvation, though, is glorification. Right? That, that, that's our blessed hope. That's when the rapture is going to happen and we're going to be transformed. That's when we're going to go from this lowly state 
to our glorified state. This mortality is going to put on immortality. This corruption is going to put on incorruption, Paul says. And the hope of heaven changes everything. I often think about this. Hey, what's the worst that could happen? You know, say God calls me to go be a, a missionary in Afghanistan. What's the worst that could happen? They catch me. They throw me in a cage. They take me out and beat me every day for 50 years. And then I die and go to heaven. That last part, die and go to heaven, it makes the rest of it not so bad. You see, we could endure just about anything if we know that heaven is awaiting us. That is the helmet of salvation. It's the hope that everything's going to be made right, that heaven is waiting us. You know, probably one of the greatest hurts that somebody could go through is losing a loved one. Right? Having a spouse die, a child die, a best friend die. I, I had to go through that. I had a, a best friend die. And it was hard. But you know what made it better? The hope of heaven. Knowing that one day we're going to be reunited in heaven. That took the sting of it away. See, that's what the, the helmet of salvation does. It, it, it takes the sting away. Now the enemy's not going to be able to come and attack me in that way because I know, no, I'm going to be with that guy again. I get to spend eternity with my friend. Number three, God has a word for each specific temptation we face. Fill in word and temptation. Verse 17 again, we're to take up the helmet of salvation. Here it is, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. See, he's saying that the word of God acts like a sword against the enemy's deception. Now, you might be thinking, how is this different than the belt of truth? Didn't the belt of truth have to do with the word of God? Isn't that what I was saying earlier? Yeah, that's true. But the belt of truth and the sword, they are similar. Uh, in, in fact, the Roman soldier would attach his sword to his belt when he wasn't using it. You know, so th th there's a connection there. However, they're a bit different. I mentioned how the belt of truth speaks of the word in a more general sense, but the sword of the spirit in a, a more specific sense. Notice how Paul says to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. There's two different words for the word in Greek. Here it's not the typical word that, that, that's found. Typically it's the word logos, right? Halagos to Theo, the word of God, speaks of, of Jesus is called the Lagos. Uh, the, the Lagos really means the, the revelation of God, right? And, and so Jesus is the Lagos. He, he is the word of God. He is the revelation of God. But in verse 17, it, it's not Lagos used, used here. It's, it's, a, it's a different word. It's, it's, it's Rhema. This is a spoken word. It's, it's very specific. It's a specific word for a specific time in a specific circumstance. It's a word that is fit for that perfect occasion. That's what it is. The rhema is what Jesus used against the devil when he was out in the wilderness being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Remember the first temptation that the devil brought his way? At least the first one recorded in the Bible. He knew Jesus was hungry, that he hadn't eaten in 40 days and 40 nights. And so he pointed out to Jesus, hey, there's some stones there. I know you're hungry. Why don't, why don't you, you turn those stones into bread? You know, feed yourself. Remember what Jesus' answer was? 
He spoke directly out of Deuteronomy 8.3. He had a specific word out of God's word for the specific temptation that he was going to face. See, Deuteronomy 8.3 says this, He humbled you and let you be hungry, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. See, Jesus knew his Bible so much that when the temptation came, he was able to take a specific verse and speak against that temptation. He was able to speak truth to it in a pointed way. You see, sometimes the enemy is going to get past our shield of faith. He's going to get in close. And we're going to be in this hand-to-hand combat. We're going to be wrestling with him. And this is when temptations start getting stronger and stronger. And when we realize this, we must use the sword of the Spirit. We must have specific verses to bring to memory against specific attacks. This is why we need to know our Bibles better. right? The more we know our Bibles, the less we're going to be able to be attacked. And this sword here that's in our text, it's in the Greek, it's, it's the Makaira sword. Uh, Makaira is a sword, it was about 18 inches long. It's a short sword. It was type of sword that you'd use for hand-to-hand combat. It's really, we, we get the word machete from it. Uh, you know, and so God's word is like a, a machete versus the enemy for those who know how to wield it. You know, Jesus, it says that when he comes back, he's going to, here, I'll just read it to you. Revelation 19. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except for himself. He is clothed with a rib robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The Lagos. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, that's us, white and clean, we're following him on a white horse. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. That's the rhema. That's the word that is spoken at the right moment to defeat the enemy. The Romans also had these... uh, these wooden replicas of their swords. You ever seen the movie 300? Or, uh, you know, you'd see him practicing with those. Not, not 300, Gladiator. Remember, he's practicing with that wooden sword, right? And, and, and Roman soldiers literally would, would train with that every day. Every single day, they'd spend hours just practicing these wooden swords, fighting with each other. Over the years, I've noticed one thing. The most effective thing for a Christian growth is simply reading the scriptures. It's just simply reading through the Bible over and over and over. That's what's going to grow us. That's like the Roman soldiers picking up those wooden swords and training with them day after day after day so that when they're in battle, they're effective. When they're in battle, they're not in as much danger. So I ask, how many of us have read the entire Bible? Probably not enough. So this year, I'm going to start something. Starting January 1st, I'm calling it the Bible Reading Challenge. We've tried this before. We're going to try it again. But I'm going to challenge you guys to read the entire Bible this year. 
I'm going to make ways to make it interactive and fun and, and all of that and encourage us to do it. In fact, I'm going to align the next sermon series, but we're going to finish Ephesians in a couple of weeks with that. We're, we're going to call it Route 66 Bible Study, and we're going to study every book of the Bible kind of from a 30,000-foot view. We're going to get an overview of each book, one book at a time, and hear about the main themes in it, the main people, how the gospel's in it, uh, how we're to read it, how to, we're to interpret it, how it fits in with God's uh, plan of salvation and redemption and all of that. And the whole point of it is, is to equip us and to help us get this book, to help us train with those wooden swords so that we could be effective in our day-to-day combat. You know, I've had a lot of surgery in my life. I really have. And a couple of them were, were pretty big surgeries. I remember a, a couple of times that I had them, uh, you see, normally they'd will you into the operating room. And right about the time that they're getting you in there, they're already giving you some anesthesia. And you get in there and you're a little kind of out of it. And then they tell you to start counting back from 10. And you usually make it to about seven. And then you're out. Well, a couple of these I did, they had to put a stent into my neck. But I had to be fully alert while they were putting that in, in the operating room. It wasn't fun at all. But I remember I'm laying there. And they're putting this stent in my neck, and, and I'm looking over, and there's this table laid out next to the operating table that I'm laying on, and it had all kinds of these power tools, like crazy-looking power tools. It was straight out like in the movie Hostel. Have any of you guys seen the movie Hostel? Oh, man. It, yeah, it was, it was gnarly. But what was sharper than those surgeon's tools? The sword of the spirit. Right? It, it really is. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God, it's living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, as piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. See, no matter what weapon this enemy, our enemy forms against us, it's not going to stand because we have a stronger weapon in the sword of the spirit. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And this sword isn't just a defensive weapon to fend off the enemy. It's offensive as well. You see, as we wield it effectively, it'll pierce the hearts of unbelievers around us and it'll convict them in their unbelief. You see, when somebody's attacking me or the devil or a demon is operating and it's agitating someone to come and attack me, when I do what Jesus did and I speak the rhema, the word of God, the truth into that situation, it's going to penetrate that guy's heart and it's going to convict him of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he's going to have a decision to make. Is he going to suppress that truth and unrighteousness or is he going to repent? See, if we're going to go and take back ground from the enemy in this world, if we're going to be salt and light like Jesus has called us to be, it's not going to come through social programs or laws. No, it's going to come through the gospel. Sinners are going to get saved. They're going to get transformed. And the more sinners that get saved and transformed, the more our society is going to get changed. And our one weapon to bring about that change is the sword of the Spirit. And I'm giving each one of you guys a concealed carry permit right now. I want you to carry your sword. Use your sword. You ask, how do I get better at evangelism? I get asked that all the time. I say the same answer. Read your Bible more. 
Read your Bible more. I've noticed one thing. What goes into us is usually what comes out of us. The more that we're filling ourselves with, that's what we're going to talk about. That's, that's what we're going to share. The more I watch Fox News, the more I talk about politics. The more I read the Bible, the more I talk about the Bible. And so what do we need to do? We need to go out and just tell people about the Word of God. We need to tell people what the God says about who they are, about salvation, about who God is, all of that. We just need to go share the Word of God. We need to get into the Word. We need to get better with our sword. And as we do that, you'll notice that God's going to start using you to evangelize, to, to take on the kingdom of darkness and rescue people from the, the brands of the fire. God's going to start doing that more and more as you're in the Bible. I'll close with this, you know, this call to get into combat. It might sound kind of scary. It might sound kind of uncomfortable, uneasy, things like that. But I guarantee you that is the place where we're going to thrive the most. The other day I was listening to this, uh, I don't know if it was a podcast or a documentary, it was really interesting, though. It was about this, this Navy SEAL. And, and he talked about how he decided he wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And then he signed up for the Navy SEALs. And then he went through SEAL training and he passed. And he talked about them stamping the trident on his chest and how it was the greatest feeling he had ever experienced, that he had completing SEAL training. And he's a part of that group. It's kind of like us getting our belt of truth, you know, we're part of God's army, Right. But then he talked about how, you know, they would train and train and train for every specific situation. But then finally he was sent to Afghanistan. And, and he was finally going. He was going to do what he had been trained to do. And, and he said that when he landed in Afghanistan, it was kind of surreal. The, the trip from the airport to the little base where they were staying was, was really surreal. And then he got off the Humvee and started packing his stuff. And he talked about the way that it kind of worked, whereas that, you know, uh, that there was, that they kind of rotated seals. So uh, uh, there is a group waiting to go home, but before they could go home, the other group, the other guys had to show up. And then they had to do a certain amount of, of rounds together, kind of a passing of the baton, if you will. And this guy talked about how the first two weeks he was there, he was just terrified. The first time that they went out and actually just did a walk around the perimeter of the base, that he was, his knees were shaking and, and he was freaked out. The first two weeks, he, he barely slept, you know, in this new environment, this being in a war. But then he said after about two weeks, he was the most at peace he had ever been. He had the greatest sleep he had ever gotten, you know, because he was just so loser focused into the mission. He was doing what he had been called to do. He was doing what he had been trained to do. He was operating in, in, in that and he was getting a sense of fulfillment out of it. He said he would lay his head down and he slept better than he had ever slept before in his life. He said he felt like he was thriving more than he had ever thrived in his life there in the battlefield. Could I tell, suggest something? That it's the same thing for us. God has called us to a battle. He's equipped us with his armor for this battle. The very armor that he wore as a warrior in the Old Testament the, the warrior, that, the, 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 the gear that Jesus wore during his life and ministry that was tested, that he never failed. He, he lived his whole life without sin. He was fully protected. 
And when, when we are operating in that, when we're, you know, doing what we're supposed to do, that's when we're going to find the most satisfaction, joy, peace, contentment. So let's get in the battle. Let's start fighting those fights. Stop giving in to temptation. Stop allowing the enemy to just have his way with us. Press in, stand firm, and put on the full armor of God. Amen? So God, we do pray. We thank you that you have already won the victory, Lord, and we're fighting from victory, not for victory. I thank you that you've given us your armor, Lord, your your character, you, that you've clothed us with yourself, Lord. Help us to grow in that. Teach us how to wield that sword effectively. We don't want to hurt people like some people do with the word of God, but we want to use it effectively in a way that will bring about repentance and change, Lord. So teach us how to do that. Help us to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, Lord, and uh, and help us really to, to speak the truth, Lord, especially in this season. Uh, this, this season of celebrating your incarnation. May we have the boldness to open our mouth and tell everybody the reason for the season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.